You're listening to Session 20 of the Behavioral Observations Podcast with Matt Sicoria. Welcome to the Behavioral Observations Podcast, stimulating talk for today's behavior analysts. Now here's your host, Matt Sicoria. Hey everybody, it's Matt here. It's session 20 already. How did we get here so fast? Anyway, thanks for joining me today. Today's a long-awaited question and answer show with Greg Hanley. You guys have been so patient. Uh, we've tried to schedule this once or twice, and uh, we managed to get it done over the holiday break. So, you know, Greg's been kind enough to appear for the third time on the podcast. His first two appearances have been the most downloaded of all the podcasts to date. Uh, we We take quite a bit of time going through all these questions. So I'm going to try to keep this introduction short. Um, but I do real quick want to thank all of you who took time to fill out the survey that I sent out. Uh, and that survey was uh, a listener feedback survey designed at giving me information so I can improve the listener experience. I can't get into all the results here. I might do that in a future episode. But in brief, I want to let you know, I read through every single response and I got quite a few suggestions on how to improve the show. I look forward to taking action on these things as we transition into 2017 here. Getting back to this episode, I, I find myself really enjoying the uh, listener Q&A format. Uh, going forward, I'm going to try to work in some listener questions or two into my regular interviews, so you can stay tuned for that. Uh, the way I'll probably do this is that the next time I conduct an interview, I'll send a note out to mailing list subscribers and uh, let you know the guest and the topic. Then I'll choose a question or two from what I get back. So uh, if you want to get on that list, you can head on over to behavioralobservations.com and uh, click on the bright red button to your right and follow the prompts from there. It's pretty simple. So again, I want to keep this introduction really brief because we do have a lot of material to get through. So without any further ado, please enjoy this listener Q&A episode with Dr. Greg Hanley. Hey, Greg Hanley, welcome back to the Behavioral Observations Podcast. How are you doing? I'm great, Matt. Thanks for having me back. Happy to be here. Well, I uh, really appreciate you coming back for round number three. So this is a, I've, I've had some repeat guests, but uh, uh, this is the first uh, uh, three-peat, if you will. So thanks for uh, indulging the uh, the crowd uh, once again. You know, I, I want to let you know that, you know, I know we we're chatting prior to hitting the, the record button here that, uh, you know, there is an intense interest in what you have to say and, and the topics that you like to talk about, uh, you know, so uh, episodes one and seven uh, that, that you appeared on uh, have been the most downloaded shows out of the uh, 19 or so podcasts that I've published to date. So uh, it just speaks, I think, to the, uh, the message of uh, what you have to say and people's intense interest in, in trying to help kiddos and adults with problem behavior. So I think episode number one's been downloaded almost 10,000 times, which is just completely mind-blowing. Yeah, that's that's really neat. I mean, it's a, it's an important topic, right? Most of us BCBAs are called upon to help folks with problem behavior. So we, I just happen to be talking about something that ha has value to who we are as a field. I tell you, I've been enjoying your podcast. I really like what you're doing. And it's it's just great to see uh, the field communicating in multiple different ways. And we need that. 
so it's great. And you reach in practitioners. When I go to conferences and I meet up with people and they uh, know the kind of things that we are working on right now, I say, how'd you learn about that? And they say, well, I listened to the Behavioral Observations podcast. I say, all right, another good <laughs> one, another point for Matt. So, um, yeah, it's good stuff what you're doing. So thanks for doing it. Keep doing it. Thanks. I appreciate it. It's a, it's a really fun project. Do, do, do people ask you Do people ask you if you want a whiskey smash? <laughs> they they do. Thank goodness. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. So at the very least, there's that, right? Yes. That's uh, right. So, uh, uh, well, I've got a list of questions here. Um, but is there anything? So, it, w- what's crazy is that the, we re-record the second episode more than a year ago. Uh, excuse me. I I know I didn't release it. Uh, I released it uh, more recently than that. But um, so I wanted to see uh, before we get into the questions here. Um, is there anything new that you want to update us on in terms of um, uh, the ISCA process and what sort of research you're doing and things like that? Uh, sure. We have a fair amount of projects going on. Uh, basically, we are really trying to move it out and figure out ways to get the treatments to work in relevant settings. You know, we're asking questions about maintenance, generality, parent training, uh the preventative efficacy of a program like this, uh, as well as uh, gearing up to do some kind of randomized control trial to really see in an, somewhat of an actuarial sense whether, you know, what's the probability this process will improve outcomes in meaningful ways for uh, the kids it's designed for and, and really get a hit rate. Uh, I think we're looking at, at those sort of questions. They're intriguing us right now. We also have a really neat uh, home-based prevention program called Balance that we're working on, uh, but it's in its infant stage, And uh, but I'm, I'm excited about that. And then there's a question that someone had here that we'll probably get to, but we're also applying uh, some of our skill-based treatments better to automatically reinforce behavior, especially stereotypy, and uh, that's really exciting too. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, so we got some we got some good stuff going on. Uh, we're just trying to move forward. And, and before another question, kind of before we get into the listener questions, is uh, I, I can't let this opportunity pass without asking about the symposium at uh, ABAI last spring in Chicago. Mm. For those who weren't there, uh, there was kind of a, uh, or at least I'm I'm gonna editorialize here for a second, but there was kind of an epic showdown between you and and Wayne Fisher. Who is a mentor of yours, and uh, certainly, and, and it was, it was like watching a a uh, a teenager or a young adult argue with a parent, <laughs> and, and, and I, I had that like, you know, like 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 an Irish Thanksgiving or something like that. You know? <laughs> like I'm happy, despite my last name. That's I'm a good way. That's a good way to frame it. That's right. That's right. Uh, I, I mean, thank, I think I'm half Wayne, Irish I, I don't folks, so know. Don't, please, please, uh, you know, don't write in, you know. Um, yeah, I don't know if, uh, if I don't know how it came across necessarily. I do know that I, I was thankful that Wayne uh, started out and modeled some kind of cordiality. And uh, I hope I followed suit. Uh, I have a lot of respect for Wayne. Obviously, I mentioned that several times at that sure. event. And uh you know, we just happen to disagree on, you know, some details. Uh, but I, to me, the devil's in the details, and uh, they're important details. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, I, I give I give Wayne a lot of credit because uh, a lot of people 
have commented in in ways that they don't either don't understand or don't appreciate uh, the, the way we're doing analyses nowadays. Uh, but Wayne was generous enough to talk about it publicly. Wayne was generous enough to do a comparative analysis, uh, spend some of his research time on it, and uh, engage the conversation. So, you know, I've always respected Wayne since the day he hired me, and uh, I continue to this day uh, because of the way he handles himself uh, professionally in such a transparent way. But it, it was fun. Uh, I, I think we left with uh, a little more common ground uh, mm-hmm. than we started with. I think that was a good thing, and I think we probably dispelled some uh, of concerns that uh, people may have had about why Wayne proceeds one way, why um, my research and practice group uh, proceeds a different way. And, and what's neat is the conversation's still going. It's going on in the journals, although that's a slow and grinding process, uh, and um, and so we'll see what shakes out. But it was a nice opportunity, and I really wish there were more events like that at ABBA, to be honest, where we just in a transparent sense talk about the things that are not published pages you know yeah yeah it was it was unlike any event i've seen and uh you know i've been doing this for a little bit and uh it was it was you know it's funny it was in chicago and if it was if it was at the the, was at the hilton down the street you could have done it in the room with the lincoln douglas debates you know (laughs) took took place you know where where abba was held uh i don't know about five or six years ago i think uh you know it was it was really uh, it, it was it, anyway. I'm not going to belabor the point, but it yeah. was. Um, well, we don't we don't see disagreement aired out much, you know, in a public sense, mm-hmm. and that's unfortunate. Uh, I would say we see it more in basic research, you know, when there was debates on matching and molar versus molecular interpretations, uh, different predictive models. Uh, it was much more public disagreement. That was fun, even if you weren't really into the content. You went just because it's interesting to see that kind of dialogue. Is people were attracted to that. I think people were looking more for more of a train wreck and more of a, you know, attack, Wayne and I to attack each other. But there was none of that. There was just the content and the disagreement. Well, and, there was uh, there was some passion there though. So I, oh, there I, was definitely I, I, some passion there. We were running out of time. We were pressed for time, and uh, so that made that added another factor to an already potentially contentious event. Uh, just being pressed for time made it that much more uh, intense, if you will. <laughs> yeah, I, I saw some colleagues uh, who at, right after that who were attending a different event. I was like, you guys just missed something awesome. So anyway, it was, uh, it was, it was fun. But uh, again, I don't want to belabor that point, but I, w- I want to highlight that because it was, it was cool and hope to see some more dialogue like that at, yeah. at future uh, conferences. And I agree with you. I think that that's healthy. So, um, but having said all that, I've got some listeners who've been really champing at the bit to ask some questions about the ISCA process. So if it's all with you, let's, uh, let's go through and, uh, uh, Check, uh, check out what people are uh, asking about. Great. Let's get into it. All right. Cool. So I'm, I'm going to just kind of bang through this list here and uh, I'm going to kind of be mindful of, of your time here. I know uh, you're probably about an hour and a half south of where I am right now, but we've got about a storm that's going to bring about 20 inches of snow on us. <laughs> <laughs> you go. Coming up, you, so. more, you more than me, but we're both going to get whacked. We're going to get whacked here, yeah. So uh, we'll, we'll, we'll be mindful of time. We may not be able to get them all in, but we'll just kind of kind of go through and see what we can get to. So, All right. Okay. Without any further ado, Greg Elsky asks, how do you run the early phases of tolerance training when the reinforcer is not immediately available? Or not available at all. For example, I want Disneyland. 
Sure. Yes, this is a, a great question uh, that Greg asked. Uh, what I try to uh, teach our group to focus on is to uh, set up your original analysis conditions to evoke MANs that can be reinforced in uh, somewhat of an analog setting. Okay, so we're not running our analyses under natural conditions. We're usually running them in a, in a controlled space. And we do that partly so that we can get a lot of repeatability of set the EO, get a response, respond and, and so on and so forth. So uh, again, some kids are going to make requests that are completely unreasonable, unreasonable in the sense we can't reinforce them in the moment. We try to deal with that in the early stages, well before we get the tolerance training to teach kids the game. These are the things that you can man for that we're going to provide and then eventually withhold. So we, we deal with that at that front end. We also have this uh, phrase where when someone asks for something that's not deliverable at the moment, we say, I'm sorry, that's not reasonable. And okay. we move on. It's basically a signaled extinction. Yes. Okay. Uh, and so we try to get some kind of control over the type of mans that will be emitted, and then we can begin our tolerance training. So we can uh, make it clear that we are going to reinforce them intermittently and unpredictably with that thing they manded for. So again, the trick is really in the analysis phase to give that child a opportunities to man for things that are available. So we want to populate that environment with many things that are going to evoke manding that can be reinforced at the moment. And that, again, goes back to synthesized contingencies, right? Not putting mm -hmm. a toy in the room, putting many toys in the room that people have used to uh, control problem behavior. And then again, using a signaled extinction as needed, those unreasonable or unreinforceable mans uh, get tagged with a, that's not reasonable and no reinforcement. This, uh, unfortunately, that sometimes leads to a little resurgence in problem behavior, and we simply deal with that through uh, extinction. But it's extinction in the context of differential reinforcement. Those reasonable mans then become stronger in probability, and then we're off to the races. Right, and I would imagine if, you know, people in the natural environment aren't consequating problem behavior with Disneyland all, with all that much frequency. So I would imagine no. some of those, there might be some, from an analysis standpoint, there's more than likely something else that's reinforcing those that, that repertoire of challenging behaviors. Is that fair well, to say? I think that's a good question. We don't know. It, it, sometimes it's just part of the response class of manding, and the mans get a little more unreasonable as a larger chunk of mans are reinforced consistently. So it could simply be uh, that that is the reinforcer. It is a man. They are specifying uh, the event that's important to them at the moment. It could also be that that unreasonable man is maintained by a different reinforcement contingency, just like you're saying. And there's no doubt that just controlling the conversation and getting access to somebody's attention is a reinforcer. Mm -hmm. uh, and so those unreasonable mans can certainly uh, be influenced by that. Although yeah, we've never of. shown that. I, I believe that to be the case, certainly. Yeah, it could make people jump through hoops and things like that. That's kind of where of I was thinking. Yeah, yeah, no, uh, I, I think you're right on. I think that's uh, something that needs to be demonstrated. Uh, we have control by preferred conversations and things like that. But I, I don't think we've shown – I don't think anyone's shown that uh, these unreasonable mans are maintained by some other reinforcer than that which the man specifies. And undoubtedly that is happening. Uh, mm -hmm. with kids. There's a lot of kids with autism that have mans that are completely out of stimulus and evocative control. Yeah. Uh, they're just messy manders, I call them. And and those messy mans are, are usually maintained by things that are not specified and usually simpler than the thing that is specified. Mm -hmm. But again, that's a, that's an empirical uh, thing, thing that needs to be demonstrated empirically. You know, sure. This is something you and I probably see in practice, but the research is yet to catch up. 
Okay, cool. Laura Peterhoff asks, uh, she's got like a five-part question here. We'll just take it <laughs> one by one. Yeah. I'll tell you, people are, t- people are totally into this. So uh, uh, she asks, what do you tell parents or school staff, uh, excuse me, what do you tell parents or school staff to do if the client starts to say my way outside of the session? Do you tell them to reinforce it every time, if reasonable? You yeah, can tell she, she's listening because she used the word reasonable there. There you go. That's a term I like to use, too, with uh, families and teachers. Uh, we do say if the child, uh, if the man's that we're teaching in sessions bleeds outside a session, which is in the long run a good thing, right, that kind of generality, we do say try to reinforce it as much as you can if we're in those early stages of FCT. If we're in a later stage where we've already begun tolerance training, we'll try to export that kind of uh, schedule where you sometimes reinforce demand and you sometimes expect more behavior. Uh, so we we basically uh, have changed our tune a little bit in how we transport the treatment out. And this question kind of allows me to talk about that a little bit. We used to really uh, focus on shaping up the entire repertoire, okay, communication, toleration, compliance. And uh, until that repertoire was completely shaped, we didn't export the treatment to other settings. And we really didn't want people, relevant people from relevant contexts implementing the treatment. But like Laura brings up, sometimes those skills come out. And so that's one reason why we changed our, our transfer model. The other reason is we noticed that sometimes when we waited for the whole skills, all skills to be acquired, and then we put mom and dad in the room, we saw return to baseline levels, despite the contingencies supporting the right behaviors. Mm. And so uh, because of those two reasons, we have a different transfer model now. And it goes something like this. At every stage of treatment, let's say with FCTs one stage, once they have the communication response, we now like to bring the parents or the teachers or at least someone else in the room to implement the treatment. And we start the general generality process uh, earlier Okay. So then once they learn the tolerance response from an expert, the expert develops the tolerance response, then we put the parents back in the room. So we're now introducing parents to the treatment uh, sequentially as opposed to at the very end of the process. Once we introduce them sequentially, we still say, listen, don't take this on the road. Just do what you've been doing to manage at home. If the if the communication or toleration response happens, though, we do say, just like Laura insinuated, we say reinforce it to the best you can. Awesome. We worry about chaining problem behavior and all that with these nice skills, but it's inevitable. And so the, I think the best way to get through this, and I'll end on this, the best way to deal with this is to do the treatment as fast as possible. Okay. That's some, the, the last thing we're trying to focus on. We're spent, we, my group, spends too much time developing these skills. We uh, have models where parents come in but two hours a week. It's just not good enough. We really need to see kids four, five hours a week. We need to be in schools implementing this two hours, three hours a day so we can get through the skill building process fast so we can uh, get it out into the natural environment quicker. And then we can avoid all these issues more readily. Okay. Um, so you, you already kind of went ahead and answered her second question about transfer, which is an excellent question. Oh, yeah. There you go. Um, would you even consider this process for a behavior which in which the reinforcer is one you cannot deliver or allow? For example, pica, or I'm sure we could also put self-injury in there or anything else yeah. in, the, in yeah. that kind of harmful realm. We certainly do this. Uh, this question kind of has two bits to it. Okay. So uh, – 
the question seems to suggest, would you do this with automatically reinforced behavior? So I'd like to touch upon that. Then the other one is, would you do this with severe topographies of problem behavior? So I'd like to talk about that because they're really independent uh, factors to consider. Let's take the second one first. We do the ISCA with severe problem behavior, no matter how severe the behavior is. In fact, the early uh, understanding was this might be a good procedure for kids with like kind of uh, easy to manage low intensity problem behaviors. I don't know where that came from, but that is not the case. In fact, the first three kids in the studies did not have easy behavior. It was quite severe, quite harmful. They were breaking bones and hurting people and on their way to residential programming. Um, we do this with uh, severe problem behavior. And we think the the reason why it's important to do with severe problem behavior is the ISC is fast and it's relatively safe because we stop behavior quickly by with the synthesized reinforcer. So yes, we apply this with severe problem behavior, including self-injury. Now, when it comes to things like PICA, readily admit I have not applied the ISCA to PICA. Okay. Uh, I was fortunately involved with the early PICA studies with uh, functional analyses with Kathleen Piazza. Um, they involved baiting the environment with uh, safe to consume uh, items. Uh, it's certainly, in, you should probably be doing this with medical oversight. Uh, I had the luxury when we did these analyses with Kathleen of having medical uh, availability of personnel uh, during the analyses. I think that's one of the reasons I don't do that because I do not have medical personnel in my outpatient clinic. Um, but nevertheless, uh, could you do the ISCA with PICA? The answer is yes. Let's give the caveats. One, you got to bait the environment with things that are safe for the child to consume. You might consider uh, allowing the behavior to occur and then upon that first instance, reinforcing it and ending the session before they consume the item. That might be consistent with a trial latency-based analysis. I think that would be a smart application of it. Uh, again, just because you do a latency, a trial-based doesn't mean you need to use the standard procedures. You can still synthesize and inform the contingency. Uh, but just once the behavior occurs one time, provide the reinforcer and move on. I think that would be a smart thing to do uh, with PICA. Again, I think having some medical personnel there um, would be in people's best interest, but I see no reason why it could not be done with PICA. Uh, the assumption that PICA is often maintained by automatic reinforcement probably isn't true. If you look at any review, the social sensitivity has been shown with PICA uh, repeatedly. Um, so yes, I think you can do this. I haven't, uh, but those are the things I would consider were I to do it. Okay, so let's look at uh, stereotypic behavior then. Yeah, great. Uh, a lot of times people have the question, well, what about automatic reinforcement? Anytime I do a workshop, they're just politely waiting for me to talk about automatic reinforcement and how the ISCA addresses that. Um, so let me take that on its own. We'll get the stereotypy. When we do an interview, it becomes somewhat evident that the behavior uh, seems to be controlled by automatic or sensory reinforcers during that conversation. If that's the case, we simply wow. run in a lone condition. And if behavior persists in the absence of any change in the environment, we use that as a baseline to treat. Now, it doesn't mean problem behavior isn't sensitive to other reinforcers. Um, and sometimes we will run an ISCA with a, a, social, a synthesized social reinforcer to see if we see more behavior than we do in an alone condition. In other words, to see if it's sensitive to those social reinforcers. If it is, we'll treat the behavior with the treatment uh, predicated on control by social reinforcement, but that which remains, that which is left over, that persists in the uh, without any change, 
that's what we would consider the automatically reinforced behavior and we would treat accordingly. So what would that analysis look like? It's one condition called the alone or ignore condition. Um, and so there is nothing special about a standard analysis for detecting control by automatic reinforcement. It's simply a default when uh, we show it persists without change. And so we do that in a single uh, condition. Is that an ISCA? I guess so. It's informed by an interview. And I'm not running four or five conditions. I'm merely running the mm -hmm. one. There's precedent for that well before we started doing what we do. Um, so that's the first thing, uh, what we do in the analysis. But secondarily, uh, Dr. Jessica Slayton has just started a project. Well, it's been on, going on for about a year and a half now where we're applying our skill-based treatment to automatically reinforce stereotypy. Now, understand this is not automatically reinforced self-injury. This is automatically reinforced behavior that we can tolerate occurring sometime. And the treatment effects are really pretty strong, and we're very happy with it, and, and I'm pretty excited to share it uh, soon. But basically, it looks like this. We teach the kids uh, the engaging in chronic stereotypy that's interfering with learning or social interaction. We teach them to ask for permission to engage in stereotypy. And we're working with kids that don't have any sometimes vocal verbal behavior, but they learn to say things like, may I play now? May I do it now? Okay, and they sometimes have uh, interesting words that their parents have taught them to label their stereotypy, mm -hmm. and they manned for it. And what do we do at first? Well, we say yes every single time. And if they don't man for it, we block stereotypy. Do you block they, them as a as a uh, prior to prompting the man so that they are not having free access to? That's the, right. The that's exactly right. Okay. So it looks like this: they're engaging in stereotypy. We put our hands on their hands to quiet their hands or quiet their body, depending on the form of their stereotypy, and we prompt, say, may I play? They say it, and we back off, and we let them engage in stereotypy. 30 seconds later, we go back in, we uh, restrict access to stereotypy, prompt, demand, move off. Within usually sessions, these are five-minute sessions, the child learns to emit some rudimentary man, and then we shape it up into the, you know, something stronger. Uh, and then we go right into tolerance training, and then we go right into compliance training. And what, what Jessica has shown is we've got kids who haven't done discrete trials for a long time. Their IEP goals aren't being met. But when we apply this uh, intermittent, unpredictable reinforcement of communication, toleration, compliance, these kids are learning their skills. So when they're sitting down at the table, they're working. They manned for stereotypy. We sometimes say yes. We sometimes say no. They say, okay, no problem. We sometimes reinforce that. We sometimes don't. And then sometimes we say in a field of six, match this, point to this, and we get their discrete trials going without any stereotypy. Hmm. It's going really well. Uh, what That's we're exciting. also seeing, it's very exciting. I'm, I'm really, it's, my, it's a project that is most interesting to me that we have going on right now because we're in the thick of it and the data are coming in and it, they're looking sharp. Uh, the kids, the other thing that was neat is we got a couple kids with targeting motor stereotypy. They have vocal stereotypy. It's obviously easier to target. Uh, the motor stereotypy with blocking and differential reinforcement. And we're seeing concomitant effects on the vocal stereotypy. So although we're not treating vocal stereotypy, because we can't block it. Right, I was going to ask about response that. Response yeah. interruption, right? And we, we'll, we can talk about that. But we just let it be. 
We just don't have any programmatic contingencies in place, but we're seeing it covary. In other words, it's happening when the modus stereotypy is allowed to happening. It's not happening when we've made it clear modus stereotypy shouldn't. These other behaviors should happen. So that's uh, pretty exciting. I don't know if that'll hold up. I have a feeling we're going to meet some clients when we'll get nice uh, influence on motor and the vocals will we'll need something else. Uh, we're extending the treatment now where instead of blocking, we're using uh, Dr. Ahern's RERD treatment, response interruption mm-hmm. redirection. So instead of blocking, we have the child do three vocal uh, compliances if they if they will, or we'll do three motor compliances so we can guide them. And, uh, and I don't know how that'll work out. We're just starting those projects right now. Um, um, but it's, it's exciting. It's basically the same treatment. And I, I'm I like things that are consistent and fairly straightforward, and that's what this is. No matter what the controlling contingency is, we're using the same skill-based treatment. And and, uh, that leaves off one section of the population that we serve, and that is kids who have self-injurious behavior that uh, is, is fairly injurious and it's automatically reinforced. And when I do workshops, I make it very clear that I can offer nothing special for these children. That which I do with these children has been in the literature for 10, 15, 20, 30 years. What what we've been doing is what I would do too. There's I have nothing new to offer in that department. I, I think what we're, we're fairly effective with right now is when problem behavior is maintained by social reinforcement and or – uh, problem behavior is non-injurious and maintained by automatic reinforcement. But it's that that last quadrant, if you will, of right. automatically reinforced self-injury that we're basically enriching the environment, trying to teach them play skills and using some sort of uh, punishment contingency to decrease that behavior or using protective equipment and trying to fade out that equipment. Uh, that's what we've been doing for – I was taught to do in the you know early 90s, mid-90s that is, and uh, that's what I'm continuing to do with the kids uh, that present – in that way. Yeah, I, I worked a lot with that population uh many years ago and yeah, that's it's just a really, really tough uh profile to program for. So it is. I get it. Is. it. Um all right. So let's see. Laura's last question here. Uh when the interview and FA show that problem behavior occurs when mans are not complied with, i.e. someone's being told no, uh do you still teach the simple and complex uh FCT? I think she means F C R. Um yeah. If so, what would this look like? Would the student mand the teacher say no, the student say my way, please, and the teacher would then either deliver or say no again? Or would you skip the simple and complex FCT and go directly to the delay and denial tolerance training program? Good. Yeah, that's a, that's a really great question. Uh, I, I want to make clear that little uh, interaction that uh, uh, Laura described it is exactly the kind of interaction we're trying to program. It sounds a little bit laborious, this conversation going back and forth, but I try to have that happen for kids who are not interacting verbally, i.e. socially with other adults. Okay. So to me, that dialogue that just happened, I would try to program something like that for kids who are not engaging in that dialogue. By contrast, I meet some kids that with or without autism, they're like mini lawyers. They're constantly <laughs> engaging in the dialogue, and that's exactly what the parents and teachers do not want. Uh, and so, again, whether we're programming that interaction or not really depends on the baseline and what the parents' goals are regarding language and, and continued interaction. But more to the point of the question, if the child's mans are incredibly precise, it's fairly obvious that 
that which they're manning for, there is a controlling establishing operation. And when the man is reinforced, it satisfies the child. Then uh, I sometimes you go right to tolerance training. Mm-hmm. Okay, And I think that's fine. If there, there's precision to demand and we can turn problem behavior off by reinforcing those mans each and every time, then uh, I don't think it's a problem going right to tolerance training. However, many of the kids with problem behavior that we see, their mans are somewhat imprecise. And uh, their mans have also been chained uh, probably with problem behavior. So it's, it's really a mess. And when it's a mess like that, I like to go back and clean up the language game a little bit by teaching them a generalized mand to get all their reinforcers to turn off all the O's to make sure problem behavior will not occur. And I will rebuild that repertoire and I'll get back to specific mans. We have a neat project going on that teaches us how to do that. Uh, so to me, it's all in the precision of the mand. And, and that's why uh, you'd use a novel man too, right? With no baggage associated with it. That's exactly right. And you had a, there's another question on here, if you don't mind me no, just right skipping to it by a Chad uh, Favre. He was asking, because during a previous podcast, I referred to a study that uh, kind of conferred the advantages of that novel manned, Matt, just like you mentioned. And uh, it's we need more research in this area, but I, I really like this what this study contributes. It's by Mark Derby, uh, Wayne Fisher, Kathleen Piazza, uh, Art Wilkie. I believe Catherine Johnson. It was published in Behavior Modification in 1998. And basically, it's a really elegant analysis showing that when you reinforce existing mans and you put problem behavior on extinction, problem behavior will persist because presumably it has some response class uh, shared uh, control by problem behavior um, and these uh, and these old mans are being controlled by the same reinforcer. And because they've been historically reinforced in the same context, when you reinforce that pre-existing man, you will get problem behavior despite not reinforcing it at the moment. They showed how, by contrast, when you shape the new man and you differentially reinforce that new man, they did not see persistence of the problem behavior. And they think they showed it in a, a reversal design. It's a pretty elegant study. But uh, you know, more information would be nice, but that's enough information for me to say, let's go with the new mand mm-hmm. and uh, we might see the effect of differential reinforcement more readily than if we choose a uh, pre-existing mand for uh, ease of acquisition. Cool. Um, all right, so Mina Benjamin asks, uh, let's see. Do, 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 do discrepancies in construct validity found across indirect, direct, and experimental FAs hold up for functional analyses of verbal behavior as well? Um, I'm going to be honest, Matt, with you. I don't know how to answer this question. Uh, there's a lot going on in there. Um, discrepancies in construct validity i don't i don't know exactly what they're referring to there are some studies comparing indirect and descriptive and functional analyses and i i understand why those studies were conducted when they were but uh for me going in this day and age uh these are different things. It's mm-hmm. not surprising that indirects and descriptives and analyses don't match up because the world of controlling variables is too big and they're complementary, not substitutable assessments. So I, I don't lose sleep over this construct validity issue in functional analysis. Um, the only validity that matters to me is treatment, utility. 
And we've shown that by combining interviews and analyses, we can uh, affect meaningful behavior change. And, and, that and, with, is, and with your process, it's not like an either or, right? So you're using the interview or. to to help uh, guide the That's analysis right. process. That's right. Yeah. So I, I don't see them as distinct. I see them as complementary. And uh, so I don't know about the first part of the question. And as far as the implications for meeting verbal behavior deficits, um, there, there are really two gross paths, if you will, two, two big paths you can take. And one is taking kind of a verbal behavior approach. And there are curricula out there uh, to develop uh, language skills. And I, I prefer that kind of functional approach. And then the other approach is, well, starting with the EOs for problem behavior and teaching language uh, that seem to be related to those EOs, those events that are evoking problem behavior. I obviously prefer that path because the kids that are coming to us are people complaining about problem behavior. So we start on that path. And then to me, again, it's not, they're not, uh, substitutable, they're complementary. I think uh, practitioners would be smart to start with problem behavior because that's where the child is exceptionally motivated. You have a powerful reinforcer and we're going to teach language from that establishing operation. And then once we have that going down and problem behavior um, to zero levels, then I think taking on a verbal behavior approach or other like curricula would be great. I, I am fairly certain I did not answer uh, Minus question, uh, <laughs> but I'm simply responding to some of those words that I understand, and uh, those are the responses I have to it. Okay. Um, let's, uh, let's go to uh, Michelle Mazzolini. Um, she asks, uh, what's the deal with visual schedules being bad? And I'm tempted to do that in like a Seinfeld voice, but I don't want to <laughs> nauseate the listeners, but it sounds Yo. like something Seinfeld. What's the deal? You know? <laughs> yeah. So I, this is a question I've gotten quite a bit, uh, as a matter of fact, and I get into little arguments with uh, some of my uh, – some of the, the, the people I consult with who, you know, um, I think – I don't want to say ritualize the use of, of visual schedules, but, but use them regardless of – whether they're beneficial or not. In other words, yeah. if you're if you if you have autism, you need a visual schedule. You know. That's right. Um, That's right. So, um, well, I, I I agree with the sentiment that you're sharing. I, I, I visual schedules are neither good nor bad. Okay, uh, but I I would agree with the sentiment that we may overuse them. We may put a little too much confidence in their ability to do good. Yeah. Okay, and I think last we as a field aren't appreciating the fact that not only can they sometimes be irrelevant, but they may be relevant to influencing problem behavior. In other words, they may lead to a worsening uh, for the child, not necessarily uh, some benefit. So uh, I, again, I, I may have said this in some presentations based on uh, a little bit of data, and we need a lot more data here. And I'm not saying these things to be provocative. I'm saying these things because I'm sitting on research that is going to take a while to get out uh, in publication. But I will refer to one study. This is a study by uh, Joshua Jessel. It was published last year in Java. It's a translational evaluation of transitions. Oh, yeah. I, I, refer, remember that one. I refer to it for two reasons. Uh, one he outlined some uh, nice basic research and some applied research that shows the trouble with uh, what might be best called signaled transitions, which is what we're essentially doing with visual or textual schedules, signaled transitions. The basic research is from uh, Mike Perone's group uh, primarily, 
And what it shows is that when you have someone working in a relatively rich reinforcement context, and they're going to transition to another reinforcing context, but it's not as rich. Okay. So it's a leaner reinforcement context. There's nothing necessarily inherently aversive about this second context. It's simply not as good as the primary or the context they're in. When there's a signal that's, uh, an animal, non-human animal, or a person is moving from the rich schedule to the relatively lean schedule. And again, that transition is signaled. That's a reliable way to produce pausing, meandering, escape behavior. Mm -hmm. Okay. So given that, let's think about what a visual schedule does. About 50% of the time, there's a rich to lean transition. And we're signaling to the child, hey kid, I know you love what you're doing now. I just want to let you know that it's going to get crappier. Right. Let's go. That's what's happening 50% of the time. In a yeah. That's right. Now, the other 50% of the time, what's happening? They're going from a relatively lean schedule, if you will, to something more rich. And you'll see some nice, beautiful transitions. So when we say the child's having problems transitioning, and I see that there's a visual schedule on the wall that the ch is actually influencing the child. They are under control of the visual schedule. That might be a problem because we're signaling impending doom. We're signaling worsenings. Okay. The treatment for that is not, is not terribly forthcoming, but there's a couple ideas. One, remove the signals. If you simply go to the next place and you don't tell the child in advance that it's going to get worse, you might get rid of any transition-related issues. Uh, what Josh recommended in his paper was uh, we call them, I think we call them surprise boxes, but basically we put question marks on the schedule. And so the child doesn't know whether they're going to an area that is better than where they are currently or worse than where they are currently. And when we have this intermittent, unpredictable improvement and worsening, we think we can eradicate some of these transition difficulties. So it, it, it's really a complicated topic. I am clearly not saying get rid of visual schedules. When a child with autism comes into a new program and they're anxious, I do believe it makes good sense to teach them basically where they're going to go, where they're going to be next, when uh, the van's going to come, all those kind of things. Mm -hmm. But to me, once a child comes under control of those cues, that's exactly when we need to start working on dealing with going to a worse location and putting in some unpredictability into the schedule and teaching them to tolerate that. Um, ultimately, too, though, we need to teach kids to tolerate impending doom. Right. You know, when they overhear that they're going to the dentist tomorrow. Okay. So there's a lot of clinical opportunity here is what I'm getting at. And there's a developmental process. Okay. Um, but the bottom line is visual schedules are neither good nor bad. They're complicated. And I think we need to appreciate the nuance, uh, with these, these visual schedules. Yeah. And again, I, I, uh, I agree with that. And I also think that, uh, it's something that a lot of people that we consult to have kind of grown up literally in the field using and, and relying on and, and stuff like that. And so, sure. yeah, it, it's sometimes, at least in my experience, really difficult for a special education teacher who's been using these systems for, for years and years and years to, to take the schedule down, you know. Yes. Um, that's, that's it's, hard because they've seen it. And if you th think of it from a reinforcement standpoint, they've seen it work, you know, a high probability 
you know, well, that's the funny thing, Matt, the, the working part. You know, uh, one of the doctoral students in our uh, doc program here at Western New England, her name's uh, Berglund Sveinsdotter. She did a wonderful review paper. And in that review paper, she looked at the efficacy of visual schedules for producing, uh, you know, behavior change. We don't have a lot of support for visual schedules uh, being important for managing problem behavior, but that's usually what people are using them for. We have studies showing that can help people do their laundry better. We have studies showing it can help kids learn to use board games better, maybe interact well, knowing when to pick up the board game and when to put it away, things of that nature. But we don't have a lot of evidence showing that child has problem with transitions. The visual schedule is the independent variable that decreases that problem. But when I see them being used and I say, why do you have that schedule? It's for behavior management. And that's, the, that's where I think we have the disconnect. Or at least that's what Berglund's literature review uh, taught me. Okay, cool. I'd love to check that out. Um, all right, so Jessica Bear asks uh, a very kind of broad question, but important. Uh, if you can go through the tolerance response procedure in a little bit more detail. Um, yeah, I'm happy to. Um, ba- I'm not sure if this will be sufficient detail. Uh, what I want to preface this uh, bit with is a, there's a study by a Mashid Gayamagami. It came out in the very last issue of JABA, uh, so the 2016 issue four. I think it was released last week. And uh, in that paper, it's titled uh, Contingencies Promote Delay Tolerance. And in that paper, she painstakingly details these tolerance procedures across four different clients who present very differently. We have a toddler, we have an adult in a vocational facility, and we have a couple uh, kids Uh, six to nine years old from outpatient uh, services. And so I really would encourage uh, Jessica to look through that article. She does a really great job uh, articulating the variance in the procedures that we use to teach tolerance responding. But essentially it goes like this. Once the child has a reliable mand, it's occurring independently and to the exclusion of problem behavior, not an 80% reduction of problem behavior and not 80% independent zero problem behavior, 100% independent man under control of the EO, then we start tolerance training. The very first step in in the ratio depends on the probability of problem behavior. So let's say we have a child who has a very quick trigger. In other words, they they take to problem behavior very quickly. The sessions will look like this. We will set the EO for the man's. When they manned, we will reinforce that probably 80% of the time, four out of five trials, let's say. One out of five trials, we will say no to the manned. We will deny the manned. We'll have somebody else or that person denying the manned prompt the tolerance response. We make it developmentally simple. If the child does not have language, we're going ha- to mold their hand into a thumbs up or perhaps cross lace their fingers and put them on the table as in a quiet hand response. If they have some verbal, a vocal verbal behavior, we're going to teach them to say something quick. Okay, no problem. I'm cool. And uh, we're going to prompt that. And as soon as they do that, we're going to provide the reinforcers that they manded for. We're only doing this one out of five trials. 
And so that's the beginning. If the child does not have a quick trigger to problem behavior, the EO takes time to percolate, we may go into a 50-50 probability. In other words, half the trials, we reinforce the demand immediately. The other half, we uh, prompt the tolerance response and reinforce the tolerance response. So we play that game for a while. Once the tolerance response is occurring independently, and zero problem behaviors are occurring, and there's no emotional behavior, there's no tears, there's no whining, there's no discomfort whatsoever, then we might change the ratio a little bit. We deny more. We'll get it down to, at at, at worst or best, <laughs> a third of the time we reinforce the mand immediately, and the other uh, trials we deny, and we reinforce the tolerance response. Again, once that's happening, great. Then we ask for more than just the tolerance response. Now we're moving into the area we call compliance training. And so under compliance training, it's going to look like this. About a third of the time, we reinforce demand. About a third of the time, we reinforce that nice tolerance response. But a third of the time after they say, I'm okay, we ask them to do something that's contextually relevant, an academic thing, a transition thing, a play our way sort of thing. Once they do what we ask them to do, what we ask them to do is very little at first. We reinforce that. And now we're at the very beginning of the, tr of the final treatment, which is intermittent and unpredictable reinforcement of the life skills of communication, toleration, and compliance. The final step is to increase the amount you want them to do during that delay period till it gets to be something that's developmentally uh, reasonable. Uh, so... Uh, I'm sorry if uh, Jessica wanted something more specific than that, but that's basically tolerance training in a nutshell. And, and again, I'd look at uh, Makshid's article for the details. Okay, and I'll run down that uh, reference. I've got uh, I was I've got the issue right here in my hand. Oh, so sweet. I'll, uh, okay. I'll, I'll make sure to put that in the show notes. So um, great. Uh, it, let me kind of piggyback a question on that. Um, yeah. So with regard to the moving on into compliance, um, do you? use uh, any kind of behavioral momentum techniques in terms of, you know, when, when you start compliance training? In other words, you know, like starting something very, very easy to do and then escalating up to something that, that has historically evoked problem behavior, or do you go right to something challenging? Yeah, that's a neat question. We do indeed start with something that's very easy for the child to comply with, developmentally inappropriate. In other words, it's below them developmentally. Right, we right. might have Touch language head, able whatever. kids who could, yeah, yeah, they could code a computer and we're having them give us high fives. Yep. We do that. Okay. It is embarrassing slightly for a few sessions. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> am I relying on behavioral momentum? Uh, perhaps. That's a theory. That's a concept. It, it might be helping us, but I'm not doing it for that reason. Uh, I, I'm doing it because I'd like the process to be fairly errorless. I'm mm -hmm. doing it to keep low rates of problem behavior. Um, but we may be leveraging, if you will, this concept where if we build up a lot of reinforcement for compliance in that context, it'll persist despite a disruption in another context. So that th that may indeed be happening. But the, the bottom line procedurally is you are correct. We do start with very easy things uh, for the child to comply with. And then we then escalate the number of things we ask them to do and the difficulty of the things we ask them to do until it emulates the stuff the parents want the child doing when they can't have their reinforcers. But yeah, we, we don't start there. And uh, th there perhaps is some benefit to starting there. Perhaps experiencing extinction early in the process would be healthy. Uh, it's just that 
for me, I'm trying to move into contexts that I've struggled with in the past, like public schools and group homes. And in those conditions, to me, it's very important to be somewhat errorless, to move this process and make it look like coaching when we're just working on skills and practice and it doesn't look like um, escape extinction is at play. Sure. Um, okay. Yeah. Um all right. Uh, Megan Miller from Session 14 uh, uh, asks, uh, after listening to the podcast and hearing the discussion you all had about the application of ISCA with other populations, and now having heard uh, Mark Dixon say that they're showing undifferentiated functional analysis results with their participants who score higher on the peak assessment, I'm dying to know if Greg or others who have been working in the area of uh, FAs for decades have experienced this. And she writes, more complex functions of behavior with higher performance on assessments or for individuals who are so-called higher functioning. So let me just kind of, I guess, try to summarize what she's saying, you know, or I'm guessing at least. So, you know, higher cognitively functioning individuals, is it? Is it your kind of experience, whether it's documented in the literature or not? uh, Do they have more complex uh, functional analysis or, or more broadly, functional assessment results? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's nothing in the literature that would support uh, the saying that the higher uh, functioning, higher cognitive abilities, the more likely we're going to see a complex function or even multiple control. Okay, we, we don't have those data. But that said... <laughs> uh, I was waiting for that. Yeah, when we've done these ISCA replications... Uh, and Josh Jessel just published 30 ISCAs. Uh, I have another student at Atheon, Raja Rahman. We have about 100 ISCAs that he's working on a paper uh, to show the replications. There are some times where we do an interview and we do an analysis and we, we get what's closest to a single or simple or generic function. And those are almost always folks who are adults uh, that are severely cognitively impaired and are in uh, fairly tough resourced situations, group homes without a lot of stuff, vocational sites without a lot of stuff. And we're seeing single functions like SIB maintained by food, for instance, is an mm-hmm. example in Josh's paper. So that is, I see that, okay? Um, and when it comes to kids who have language, so let's say if a kid has a fluent vocal verbal, flu- some vocal verbal fluency, let's call the, that high functioning. Um, sure. Those kids clearly are more likely to have compliance with MANS as one of the controlling variables for their problem behavior. In other words, those kids are asking for things to be a particular way or to have things, and when those MANS are not reinforced, they have problem behavior. That is definitely a more complex relation than attention or stuff or merely escape. Okay, It's a little more dynamic. They MANS. It's denied. The denial evokes the problem behavior. The parent or teacher then tries to turn off the problem behavior, pro- providing that which was mandated for. That's more complicated than attention. Mm-hmm. So I believe Megan is correct, and, and uh, maybe Dr. Dixon's article might be bearing this out, that kids with language have more dynamic controlling variables. I have no doubt. I also have not met a kid with uh, good language that engages in problem behavior for single things attention, stuff, or escape. But I also don't believe those functions exist purely in nature anyway. 
Uh, the more I'm thinking about it and writing about it, the more I'm learning that there is no pure test for attention. There is no pure test for attention uh, escape, and there is no pure test for tangibles. Uh, people deliver tangibles. People escape two things. Attention often leads to some sort of interaction with materials in the environment. There's all sorts of interactions going on. So l let me, uh, I guess, end on this. I, I believe all kids' problem behavior is probably maintained by more complex functions than that which we've been seeing and describing uh, to date. Uh, and uh, back to Megan's point, is it likely that kids with language have more complex control of behavior? Certainly. Yeah. Uh, there's no doubt. It's just the literature is going to take time to catch up with that. So to kind of piggyback on your answer there, you know, I, I you know, getting to the notion that if I've heard you correctly in previous conversations, you know, there is no when you say something like there is no true function. Is, does that kind of get to? I don't know if I said that uh, entirely precisely, but does that kind of get to, you know, what uh, Jack Michael was writing about, you know, a while back in terms of, you know, the distinction between positive and negative reinforcement is is somewhat, uh, I don't know, correct me if I'm not saying this in the, in the right way, but somewhat arbitrary. It's that we're all kind of fleeing some aversive state to something that's yeah. more reinforcing in general, and, and, and we just kind of characterize that as positive and negative reinforcement. Yeah, yeah. Listen, it as scientists, as behavior analysts, we're cutting up the behavior environment interactions into tidy units so we can understand them. Okay, that's in a Skinnerian sense what we're doing. I get it. It's it's that's what science does, and that's good. But yes, I am uh, uh, parroting, if you will, that notion that Jack Michael gave us. And it's not that the, the positive and negative is arbitrary per se. It's just that they're not discrete. They're continuous variables. Okay. Yeah, these okay. things are positive and negative reinforcement. We might imagine them more as these continuous variables that have more overlap than not. And I do find the language game regarding positive and negative reinforcement to have been exceptionally useful in the history of understanding the variables controlling problem behavior, but I see it now as an obstacle that we need to get over. If you only look for is it positive, is it negative, you're going to miss these, these qualitatively rich controlling contingencies like compliance with MANS. That has a whole bunch of positive and negative reinforcement rolled into it, and you're not going to see it if you're going to try to put it in those tidy boxes. So, uh, I do think historically useful, useful constructs, positive and negative reinforcement. I think they're still useful, but I think we need to recognize that they're very hard to isolate, that they don't occur in nature in isolation, and that our attempts to be maybe hyper analytic are probably thwarting our efforts to be effective as interventionists. Uh, these things are powerful together. I've mentioned this in previous episodes, but it bears repeating. Escape to stuff is more powerful. We have evidence of that. There's a study by Jen Zarconi in Java. You know, it's escape to nothing or escape to, you know, play. And, and clearly escape to play was uh, more powerful. I think I have that right. And, and Kathleen Piazza's, I believe, an author on that. But there's other articles in the literature. Uh, Mike Mueller has some studies. Nate Call has some studies. We have studies showing that when you combine positive and negative reinforcement, you show problem behavior sensitivity, and when you try to isolate them, you don't. So again, uh, I'm really glad we we tried to isolate these things going historically because that's taught us to, to look for them now. But uh, I think we need to be less reductionistic and more holistic as we look at contingencies going forward. And uh, it's not holistic in that negative, like, I don't know, 
uh, non-scientific way to approach a problem. It's just trying to understand the coherency in the whole of our contingencies. And uh, I think we're at a mature point in our field where we can do that now. Okay. Uh, thank, thank goodness for the hyper-analytic stuff that has been done in the past, but I think we, we can do it now. Okay. So uh, Edward Pollard, uh, he uh, wrote in with a, with a pretty long question. I'm going to try to summarize it here. He works yeah. in uh, public school settings uh, in general education classrooms. And uh, there's some students that he's working with. Uh, his general question is about using this process with kiddos with emotional behavioral disorders, kids who perhaps are, are you know, from a cognitive standpoint are, you know, uh, you know uh, uh, within, you know, kind of typical uh, ranges, if you will. Uh, yeah. Or as I think you mentioned in a previous uh, interview, sometimes even, uh, you know, uh, have superior uh, IQs and things like that. <laughs> there you um, go. And, uh, but nonetheless, have challenging behavior. So uh, some of the kiddos he works with have problem behaviors that include, uh, you know, uh, profane language, bolting, climbing fences, hitting and spitting. Spitting's always one that gets people worked up, mm. isn't it? Yeah, it's a toughie. It's, <laughs> there's so many people I work with that are like, I'd rather get hit than spit at, you know? That's right, uh, that's right. Uh, dist- proper destruction, et cetera. Uh, so let's see. I'm trying to get to the nut of his question here. Um, so he's been trying to figure out a way uh, to apply the ISCA to this population, and he's found a couple of barriers. Uh, one is he, uh, he says it's not always possible to turn off the behavior by reinforcing it. Um, in other words, once kids are escalated, uh, they don't easily de-escalate. Uh, and so once that kind of, uh, uh, furnace is stoked, that fire takes a long time to put yeah. out. I'm kind of paraphrasing yeah. here. And I've seen this certainly in my own work. Yeah. Um, even when they're provided with any and all the reinforcers that they hypothesize are, are, are at play here. And then okay. the, 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 the follow-up question to that is that he can't always control the reinforcing consequence. In other words, sometimes it may be peers, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm sure anyone who's worked in regular ed settings certainly have seen, you know, uh, that that's a very, very uh, near impossible variable to control, uh, you know, when, when peers react to challenging behaviors and things like that uh, and, and so forth. So, um Having said that, what 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 are your thoughts on applying the ISCA process to a, uh, an, a you know an EBD population in regular yep. ed settings with under circumstances where the reinforcers are very difficult to control and um, and and problem behaviors evoke escalation that takes a long time to kind of uh, uh, de-escalate? Sure, sure. Let's take the latter uh, first. That whole notion of uh, once they escalate, hard to de-escalate, and people worry doing an analysis because if, if they're evoking the behavior, they may not be able to turn it off. Uh, I think that's an excellent concern. We should all have that concern before we do an analysis, especially in public school, especially with kids who have a really dangerous behavior. They can hurt themselves, hurt others. Um, so that said, uh, to me, it's all in the uh, methodological details. So Let's go over the reasons why behavior doesn't de-escalate. Number one, it's sometimes because we're not providing all the reinforcers. So that is the first thing I want uh, this person to consider is that let's make sure we do a good interview and we're providing all the possible reinforcers. That's my main issue with isolating reinforcers. It's not that sometimes when they're isolated, we don't see sensitivity. That's a problem too. The bigger problem is that we, we have multiple EOs operating and we provide a single reinforcer. We're not able to turn off that problem behavior. 
And so that really takes us back to an importance of an interview, make importance of having uh, multiple reinforcers that may be controlling problem behavior at hand uh, in the test condition of analysis. But that's not the real solution. Uh, that, that can be helpful, though. The better solution is this. In the interview, we need to ask about all of the co-occurring topographies of problem behavior so we can reinforce early members of the response chain. When I used to do analyses, if the people complained about yelling, hitting, uh, tisking, knocking things off the table, as well as severe self-injury and aggression, in my analysis, I waited till we saw severe aggression or self-injury perhaps until we reinforced. Under those conditions, it is possible that the reinforcer may not escalate behavior, but that's usually the case when there's some emotional responding, and emotional responding often is correlated with these more intense forms of aggression or self-injury. So that said, what's the solution? The solution is interviewing, identifying precursors or co-occurring behaviors, or another way to say it is early members of the response chain, mm -hmm. and in the analysis to reinforce those members. And people are worried about that. People don't like that inferential leap, right? They figured out why the kids throw pushing materials off the desk. They showed sensitivity to the contingency, but they never saw aggression. So in the back of their mind, they're always saying, yeah, but is the same reinforcement contingency controlling that severe behavior as that which I showed controlling the precursor behavior? Uh, I think we've have enough studies shown that when people report these things co-occurring in time and, and context, that they're probably maintained by the same reinforcer. Uh, there's a study by Christine Warner. She's presented it at Babbitt. She'll be presented it's presented at APBA and again at ABAI. And basically, it shows that when we've done extinction analyses, in other words, we keep running the ISCA out and putting uh, milder topographies of problem behavior on extinction. As we do that, we see the more severe topographies emerge and we see control by that same contingency. So let me make something clear. When people report these problem behavior forms co-occur, they're probably maintained by the same reinforcer. Mm -hmm. Be comfortable with the inferential leap that if you reinforce some kind of low intensity behavior, that that's probably the same as the uh, controlling variables, the high intensity behavior. And the final thing is the truth will be borne out by the kid's response to treatment. So if yeah. you base your treatment on the, you know, what you learned from the easy to watch behavior, then, uh, and all the problem behavior is remedied with the treatment, the deal is done. We call that response intervention. That's a, that's a healthy way to approach the situation. So let me summarize uh, for this issue of de-escalation. One, provide all the possible reinforcers Two, provide them for all topographies of problem behavior in the ISCA. It sounds sloppy but it's the way to maintain uh, safety and probably efficacy uh, with this process. Cool. Cool. Well, well stated. Um, all right. So Jennifer Lamarca asks a uh, question for Dr. Hanley. Sometimes I struggle to figure out the function of a child's behavior, especially if it could be a multiple function. What resources should I go to, to improve my analysis? Jennifer, thanks for setting up this question. Here's what I want you to do. <laughs> practicalfunctionalassessment.com. That's right. That's right. I want you to go to our website called practicalfunctionalassessment.com and uh, take a look at some of the materials. I mean, basically, uh, Jennifer, I believe that most behavior is under multiple control. I think that's been a big mistake in the history of our uh, understanding controlling variables for problem behavior. I initially was taught and learned that, you know, multiple controls are fleeting, low incident uh, kind of phenomena. Uh, I just don't think that's the case anymore. Now, 
partly it's because we're dealing with a wider array of people and controlling contingencies than we did in the past. Okay. Uh, but I think it's also because um, we're seeing multiple control more now because we're looking for it because we're designing analyses that are able to detect it. So what resources? I I, I really would just do – I assume multiple control uh, and I just do an ISCA. And I synthesize those contingencies in a single test control analysis. If I am able to control behavior effectively, i.e. see zero in control and a short latency to problem behavior in the test, I know I got a properly motivating kid to, to learn my skills, the skills I want to teach him, and I know that I can turn off behavior and I know I can uh, be safe. And and so I proceed. So go to that website, uh, check it out. I hope it's useful. Yeah, and I would add, Jennifer, I would uh, recommend on Greg's website, and again, I'll just reiterate, it's Practical Functional Assessment dot com uh, there's a youtube video that is uh particularly helpful of greg doing a training um and uh that that's probably one of the one of the many resources on that site that you could check out and greg also talks about this in uh sessions one and two um and, and we do some follow-up questions about this process in session seven of the podcast as well so you can go to behavioralobservations.com and uh, look for sessions one and seven but practical functional assessment.com is going to be your go-to for all things uh isca so uh thanks for writing in jennifer um all right so i've got a question from laura honeycutt um and she is a looks like she's a master's student she's trying to figure out what to do for a project so <laughs> <laughs> um let's see uh She's curious if uh, Dr. Hanley has any thoughts on alternative types of assessments, and I'm not exactly sure what she's asking about uh, in specific here, but she's planning on conducting a study for her thesis where she's manipulating antecedents, so it's some sort of antecedent control st study, mm -hmm. uh, but she's not a attempting to control whether or not the target behavior is reinforced or not. Um, and to conduct the study in a natural environment. She uh, doesn't specify what environment that is. Uh, let's see. I will interview relevant adults and attempt to set up my experimental control condition and control conditions to ensure da, 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 da. Uh, any suggestions on ways to improve my design or its reliability. You know what? I, I'm really glad Laura shared this. And um, here's the deal. Um, I hope Laura is listening. And I'm going to give some advice. She asked for advice, so I'm going to give it. And my advice is don't do what you're planning to do. And uh, that sounds a little harsh, and it sounds uh, – it lacks some tentativeness that perhaps an advisor uh, should have. But uh, here goes. Identifying various antecedents uh, that are controlling problem behavior is a good quest, but – you articulated that you're not going to attempt to control whether or not the target behavior is reinforced. And to me, that is dangerous. And we already know the answer to this question. Historically, in the 80s, there was an A-B model of analysis. It was where there was uh, the establishing operation manipulated, but there was no uh, direct manipulation of consequences. It was not described what happened following problem behavior. It was left to vary naturally. The problem with that is twofold. Number one, scientifically, if you allow the consequences to vary naturally, we do not know what's controlling behavior if you don't describe them and program them. Okay, so scientifically it's challenging. But practically, it's tough because if you set up provocative conditions, antecedent conditions that will actually evoke problem behavior and you do not reinforce them, I want you to think about what's going to happen. 
If you don't reinforce the problem behavior, it's going to persist. And in fact, it's going to induce variability and might get worse. And that's where analyses become unsafe. We don't need that alternative assessment. If we're going to not be marginalized as professionals and invited into schools and homes and hospitals, we need to ensure safety of our clients. And oddly enough, safety is almost ensured by providing the correct reinforcers. It's a funny thing in the history of the field, and this is complicated, Laura, so please don't take my words the wrong way. This is something we've been dealing with as a field for a long time. Ted Carr is one of my heroes, okay? But Ted Carr wrote in several articles in the late 70s as he was kind of describing the the possible variables that might control self-injurious behavior and teaching us about how attention might control behavior and escape might control behavior. Really powerful articles. In the context of those articles, he wrote that he thought it would be unethical to provide those uh, supposed reinforcers for problem behavior in an analysis. To Ted Carr, it seemed unethical to provide reinforcers for problem behavior. It seemed really counterintuitive to reinforce problem behavior like it does to many people. But that was 40 years ago. And what we've learned in those 40 years is that reinforcing the problem behavior turns it off. Reinforcing the problem behavior is humane. Reinforcing the problem behavior is what leads to safety. Not reinforcing the problem behavior is probably going to get you into hot water. I don't think we need that alternative assessment. We've had it, okay, and we've decided not to use it any longer as a field by and large, okay. Let's take you back to your thesis. How about this? Okay, good. I was, I was, I was gonna, I was gonna go. Yeah, there, that was so. too negative. Let's get positive. Yeah. How about, <laughs> how about manipulate those antecedents? Because that's really what you're excited about. I think there's probably various antecedents, and they're they're uh, qualitatively rich for the clients that you're seeing, and you want to discover whether those qualitatively rich antecedents are differentially controlling their behavior. Great, do that. But in your methods, provide the reinforcers in that antecedent analysis, but just provide the same synthesized reinforcer across all the different antecedent conditions. You still have a nice controlled analysis. If you see differences across the conditions, it's clearly the different antecedent, but you're going to do it in a safe context because you're providing those uh, putative reinforcers. So I think it's a cool project, uh, and I hope you're listening to this. Good luck with it. All right. Hey, Greg, thanks for giving her some uh, pointing her in the right direction with uh, some alternatives for that, because I know uh, w- students, uh, well, a large pr- uh, percent of the audience I, I, are, are students and things like that. So that's not only going to be helpful for Laura, but for many, many listeners to the show. So um, let's see. Uh, all right. The following question, this this. This uh, this individual re- deserves an award for homework because um, she really, she, <laughs> really went to, she really went to town here. Um, Maithri Savaraman and I profoundly apologize. As someone who has a last name that's difficult to pronounce, I I feel your pain. So if I've butchered your name, I I sincerely apologize. But Maithri asks, um, and she's writing in from from uh from India, um. Uh, hi, hi, Matt. I absolutely enjoyed the podcast on your website. Uh, da, 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 da. Said some nice things. Thank you, my three. Uh, it's my pleasure. Um, I'm a BCBA in uh, Chennai, India, and I've implemented the ISCA approach with two of my young learners. Awesome. Um, I have a couple of questions for Dr. Hanley's upcoming Q&A session. Number one, 
Are there any generalization data? Uh, in other words, has tolerance and compliance training in a few chosen provocative situations resulted in improvements in other provocative situations? For example, if uh, escape to play at home with mom is a synthesized contingency where training occurred, what about similar provocative situations at school or in a store, et cetera? Yeah, super question. All these questions are great. Yeah, uh, this she, is she, a, she a smart, yeah. smart person. Yeah. yeah, you can tell she's right in the thick of it doing great work. Uh, this is this is complicated a, a bit. Uh, I'll try to be quick with it. Generalization can be somewhat assumed from the original article in the sense that we did indeed teach uh, the skills in a particular uh, context, an outpatient clinic, uh, extended them to parents and then in sessions outside the room and then in the home. Uh, and and then we were socially validated the outcomes where parents said, listen, you know, the child's doing well in all these other contexts that we didn't uh, directly teach in. So we can assume some generalization from those data. That said, now that we're actually studying the generalization process, in other words, we're treating in context A with person A and evaluating the uh, whether that transitions to context B and uh person C without any direct teaching, what we're finding is a failure to generalize more often than not. So I want to make that very clear. We are not seeing these skills readily transition to new context unless we have the child experience the treatment in that new context with that additional person. Now, we are seeing some generalization. When I'm saying those, we're seeing incomplete generalization. A couple things you might want to look at. There's a neat study by Kevin Luzinski. It's uh, basically on the preschool life skills, which are essentially the same things we're talking about here, communication and toleration. Uh, and he showed that uh, they didn't they there was some generalization, but complete generalization, in other words, absence of problem behavior, independent skills uh, required them experiencing the treatment in that setting, which is not generalization, right? It's just uh, multiple exemplar training. So my uh, short end of answer then is this. We cannot hope for generality here. We have to program it just like Stokes and Bear taught us. If, it, if there's a challenging context in which you did not extend the treatment to, I suggest you have the child experience the treatment in that context. And then through multiple exemplar training, we are seeing extension to context in which we never did any direct training. Uh, Tanya Muzakas is doing that study. She's presented those data at our local Babbitt conference. She should be presenting similar data, I believe, at ABBA. So uh, we're working on it. Uh, but my safe and conservative recommendation is to make sure you do training in multiple challenging situations for this treatment to have impact on a 24-7 long-term basis. Okay. Um, now, would you say skill acquisition is faster once you start training in other, uh, with oh. other exemplars? Yeah, Matt, that's a great question. Actually, Tanya's data bears that out completely. Every time we implement the treatment in a new context, uh, we see the uh, amount, number of sessions it takes to get elimination of problem behavior and skills all independent to be fewer and fewer, sometimes to the point where it happens all in the first five minutes. Okay. And so oh, I know what the rules are here. Yeah, exactly. It's a learn-to-learn phenomenon. People use called learning sets. I'm not sure the appropriate term, but you are spot on that we see the treatment have the desired impact quicker and quicker each time we extend it. All right, cool. All right, so uh, my three second question here. Uh, during compliance training, Hanley's 2014 study had instructions classified into three levels of increasing complexity. How were these instructions determined, and how was complexity measured? What role did the interview play in this? Wow, that's a that's a 
that's an awesome question. It really is. Great detail-oriented question. Uh, we did use three levels of complexity. They're not arbitrary, but there's no great measurement of complexity. I want to be clear on that. It, it, it's more like what I call backward design. What we're moving backwards from are the parents' goals. We ask them in the interview, and you're right, the interview is relevant here. We ask them in the interview, when they can't have these things that are apparently reinforcing their problem behavior, what do you want them to do? Okay, what is appropriate? What are your expectations for them? So if it's a child that has problem behavior when they're um, the young child, when their mom leaves them and takes their toys away, obviously the parent's going to want them to learn to play with other stuff without the mom. Okay, so that's our goal. Another child, they may have a problem when they have to lose their stimmy toys and do discrete trials. So what are we going to want them to do? What's the goal? Live without your stimmy toys and be accurate with your discrete trials. Mm -hmm. And so we get those goals from the parents and we backward design those three levels from those goals. So the top level are those goals. The second level is an approximation of the goal. So if we want the child to do a bunch of discrete trials, we're going to have them do a few discrete trials. Okay. And the first level is just simple, usually imitation stuff that we know the child can do just so we can get some compliance off the ground uh, without problem behavior. So the three levels of complexity, again, the last level are the parent's goals, the amount and type of things they want the child to do. The second level is an approximation of that, and the first level is just simple stuff to get compliance off the ground. Awesome. Uh, any particular reason to prefer the contingency-based delay over the more traditional time-based delay? Again, uh, this is a great practitioner. If she's uh, interested in applying to graduate school, she might look at uh, the West New England University program because <laughs> I love these questions. Uh, basically, the, the quick answer to this is, Look at the latest issue of Java for that study I mentioned earlier by uh, Mashid Gayamagami. She, her entire dissertation was comparing contingency-based delay to time-based delay. And in each and every application, uh, progressive or, or the uh, contingency-based delay conferred advantage over time-based delay. Uh, let me give you the long story in a nutshell. When you use time-based delay, when the delay ends according to time and you provide the reinforcer, what we're doing is accidentally reinforcing whatever's happening at that moment in time. Mm -hmm. By contrast with contingency-based delay, we're reinforcing something specific, okay? We're not ending the delay until they've done precisely what we expected them or asked them to do. And by so doing, we're shaping up a really nice repertoire of things to do during delay rather than accidentally reinforcing things. So th that's really where we, we uh, find the advantage of contingency-based delay. And for us, it's, uh, it's a definite. The only advantage to time-based delay is you don't have to have any vigilance, okay? And so we worry a little bit about how much you need to watch kids during delays, during mm -hmm. contingency-based delay, and, and we're working on that. Just to give you a foreshadow, we do what, what might be best called the momentary DRA, which looks like this. Parents check in on the child during the delay, and if they're doing what's expected, uh, then we reinforce then. So we don't have to have uh, vigilance during that whole delay period. Uh, but that might be beyond this question. The main point is look at Mashid's uh, 2016 article and uh, really articulates why we prefer contingency over time-based delay. So I actually uh, – so is that the uh, – uh, that's with you and – Joshua Jessel, right? And that's contingencies that's right. promote delay tolerance? That's exactly right. Okay. All right. So I've got the exact citation here. That'll be in the show notes uh, since we've referenced that a couple of times here. So, so um, 
Awesome. Awesome. Uh, let's see. Uh, based on Hanley's 2016 study, where there are seven participants who needed secondary or tertiary interventions, are there any suggestions to prevent this from happening? What was missed in the first iteration for these participants? Another great question. Uh, just uh, to clarify, uh, this study that um, she is referring to is uh, was published. Uh, first author is Joshua Jessel. It's uh, Jessel, Hanley, and Gayamagami. It's also in the last issue of Java, and it's the 30 replications of the ISCA. In that paper, we made it very clear that in those 30 differentiated analyses, some were not differentiated on the first attempt. Um, and I want to make it clear that historically, when functional analyses have been published, that which we're seeing in the journal is not necessarily the first attempt. So we are encouraging authors to describe the number of iterations of the analysis before they arrived at the one that was differentiated. And Josh has taken the lead by making it clear in this article. It's very transparent. Uh, yeah, I think it's important for us to, to try to get there without littering the literature with a bunch of undifferentiated analyses. So we got to find that balance. Perhaps, uh, perhaps a sentence in the text is sufficient. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, what I'm finding is that this iterative process is happening at least 20 to 25 percent of the time we do ISCAS. So let me be clear on that. Three out of four times. Four to five times, the ISCAs uh, yield a differential analysis the first time. But 20 25% of the time, we have to try again. And I don't know how to prevent this yet. But what we are learning and collecting information on is the changes we're making to get a differentiated analysis. We're working on a paper right now. Uh, Robin Landa will be presenting data at the APBA conference titled something like Progressing from an Undifferentiated to a Differentiated ISCA. And she's outlining all the things we do when we initially fail. I'll give you what I think is probably the main one uh, that is leads to a change. Very often, the interview suggests it's escape to tangibles and attention. When we ask the questions and then try to emulate that story in the analysis, when we give instructions, we're often given instructions at too fast a pace and we're too, giving too much attention to the child while we're giving them instructions that's not similar to how they get instructions in their classroom and their home. In the home and the classroom, it's more like do this worksheet and the aide talks to somebody else or maybe uh, engages another child or the parent says, brush your teeth and then walks away. When we emulate this in the analysis, we're often talking to the kid too much while we're instructing. And I think what we're doing is we're abolishing the value of attention and thereby not evoking problem behavior. So a lot of times in this second iteration, when it's the contingency is a traditional escape to stuff and attention, what we're pulling out is how much and how fast we're prompting a child to do what we asked them to do. And when we make that change, we're often seeing uh, that change result in uh, the evocation of problem behavior. So that's just one example. I wish I could give you more detail, but this is something we're figuring out. But the main point, and I'm really happy this question was raised because I can make this main point. The main point is functional analysis is to be understood as an iterative process. You interview, you analyze. If you get good control of a behavior, you treat. And if you don't, you continue to analyze and you make changes till you get good control of behavior. That's the point. 
You, mm-hmm. We are behavior analysts. The point is to keep up your analysis till you control behavior and making slight modifications based on what the parents and teachers tell you. Again, I meant, made this clear in previous podcasts. We always have the relevant people watch our analysis. And if the analysis isn't differentiated, I simply go outside and ask them, what are we doing wrong? And they usually tell us. And we make that change. And that's mm-hmm. why it's hard to put in an article and to categorize these things because the parents are just seeing that we're behaving in a somewhat ecologically invalid way. And then they teach us how to behave like them. And when right. we do that, we see differentiation. And we will describe it scientifically. It's just taken us some time to do that. So, it's, yeah, it's why they call it a practice, right? That's right. Uh, yeah, there you go. There you go. Um Cool, cool. Well, uh, my three men, thank you so much. That was, you know, a really, uh, yeah, she gets the homework award for sure for, for right questions. Um, I have the, uh, yeah, I have both of those studies. Those will go, uh, in, in the, uh, in the show notes. Um, so last question here, Gabrielle asks, I've been using, uh, Greg's functional assessment, uh, to help determine functions of behaviors and I do like it. All right. So far so good, right? That's right. Oh, we'll take it. Uh, I was wondering about uh, behavior plan formats, uh, specifically New York State outlines components of behavior plans to ensure that they have necessary items. But I was wondering more about how he or other BCBAs write the mastery criteria section. My colleagues and I find this awkward to detail unless there is a clear IEP goal. Otherwise, would it be percentage decrease from baseline? Or in cases of aggression, SIB, et cetera, would it be zero occurrences over a period of time? Um, so, uh, you know, one of the things right, – anyway, so I, I've got some thoughts on this, but I'm, I, let, me, uh, let me hear what you have to say. Matt, you could probably answer this question better than I can, but I'll give it a first stab and then please follow up and, sure. and help me uh, and Gabrielle. But basically, um, it is important to write – uh, objective objectives, and sometimes those are lacking in IEP goals. Uh, but l- let me make it clear: when if we get to the point where we're involved in this uh, behavior plan process, our goal is for problem behavior to be zero. So I just want to make that clear: the pro- the goal is zero, and for precursors too. And we can get zero because we're teaching replacement skills. Okay, uh, the goal is zero, but then we have to have a criteria in X many contexts. We describe the context for X many observations. So that's where it becomes an objective. All objectives uh, have to have a criteria where the child passes, succeeds, or fails so that we can adjust or we can pass them on it. And so for us, uh, all uh, off this process, all the BIPs have a problem behavior objective. That objective specifies the learner, zero level it specifies the number of contexts. The contexts are the provocative context parents described in the interview and it describes how many observations we need to see zero consecutively. So that's the first one. Secondarily, we always have skill-based objectives. So the objective cannot just be on problem behavior. Mm-hmm. We're going to have objectives on communication, toleration. Those objectives are going to be more trial-based. So we're going to say when given the uh, establishing operation and given an opportunity to communicate, we're looking for the probability they will independently communicate. We are not looking for 100% of trials. We love it if we present a very difficult instruction and the child does not ask for their way, that they simply persist (laughs) and do it. But we are asking for a percentage of time 
that they will engage in the communication response independently. We also have an objective related to when they're denied that they will engage in a percentage of time in the tolerance response. And again, we specify in X many contexts, describe those contexts and how many observations before we pass them on that goal. And then finally, we have a compliance goal. Compliance is never 100%. We're not looking for that, but we're looking for something uh, above baseline that is reasonable for the teachers. And it's the same kind of criteria. Specify the context, specify uh, how many observations uh, before they're passed. Uh, you might be looking for something more, and I'm sorry if I'm missing uh, your point, Gabrielle, but that that's basically what we write in our BIPs. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and that's what I was going to suggest too is you know writing – what I like about this process, and I don't want to sound like, you know, uh, uh, fanboy here, but, um, you know, <laughs> is, is that uh, it, there are very tangible things to measure in terms of skill development, you know, and so you could certainly program around functional communication, toleration, and compliance. So, um, so yeah, cool. Well, I, that uh, – I think that's going to do it for our questions here. So um, thanks for taking the time uh, uh, to this morning. Uh, as this, uh, I'm looking out my window here, and the snow started to come down, so it's probably yes. time for me to see if my <laughs> snowblower starts. Um, yes, exactly. <laughs> and uh, Greg, uh, wh where uh, where can we see you uh, coming up? I, I know you're on the road quite a bit. Um, yeah, I, I've been traveling a little bit less. Uh, I'm doing much more journal work now, and I'm trying to uh, allocate much more time to that, which is fun. Uh, but uh, let's see. I'm going to be in uh, Chicago, uh, and I'm going to be in Chicago in a couple weeks. And on the website, I'm going to post those dates uh, today as well as the materials for that uh, conference. And then uh, – my students and I are going to go to APBA, and my students have some really nice data to present. I'll also be doing a workshop, uh, and that is uh, happening uh, in March. And so okay. I guess those are the two coming up. And uh, and I also want to mention that I, I – because there's been other questions about why we do what we do, and I just wanted to make it clear, I guess, our defense of this uh, ISCA Sure. And uh, so I, I made a, a set of narrated slides, and I'm also going to post that on the uh, Practical Functional Assessment website. And I'm really doing it for practitioners who have chosen to do this uh, the way we've described it, and uh, they, they need to be able to defend it sometimes. And I, I want to help them be able to defend it because I think it's highly defensible. But it is different, and, uh, and so anyways, these narrated slides might be helpful to folks. Great, great. If you uh, send me the link to that, I'll make sure that goes in the show notes for this okay, episode sweet. as well, and so we can get it out in, to as uh, many listeners and viewers as possible. So great, um, great, uh, Greg. Thanks again for taking the time to do this. I know my listeners greatly appreciate it. They get a chance to get their questions answered directly from the source, which is which is pretty cool. So. Uh, um, again, appreciate you coming on the podcast for round number three. So, um, hmm. thanks for keeping us informed about all things ISCA. So, um, thanks, Matt. Again, I appreciate what you're doing. You, what you're doing is a great service. I love the podcast. So, uh, keep it up and, uh, good luck with the, the, the blizzard we're about to get. And, uh, I look forward to talking to you again. All right. Right on. All right. Bye-bye. All right, man. Bye-bye. Well, that went a little longer than expected. I think we're clocking out at well over an hour and a half, which is about uh, 35 minutes longer than most of the episodes that have done thus far. But uh, 
in my humble opinion, lots of good content there because you guys provide the content. You guys sent in all these awesome questions, so we wanted to take time going through them to make sure that we answered them to the best of our ability. So, uh, again, uh, this was a really fun episode. It made my uh, interview prep quite easy, as a matter of fact. Uh, but that's not the only reason I liked it. Uh, I liked it because it was a chance for you guys to have some more interaction and uh, to, to add to the, the community aspect of the show, which is something I really like. So um, show notes, uh, head on over to behavioralobservations.com, look for session 20, and I will have that link to the narrated PowerPoint that Greg was talking about. You can also check it out at practicalfunctionalassessment.com. And uh, let's see, what else? Oh, and I'll have links to those articles that Greg mentioned as well. So you can check those out, uh, again, at behavioralobservations.com, session 20. And I think we're, we'll have all that stuff there. Uh, I think that's pretty much it for now. I think I'm going to cap this episode before we get to an hour and 40 minutes. So uh, thanks for taking the time to tune in. Uh, I will leave that listener survey up. Uh, you can check out my Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash behavioral observations. The survey will still be there. I'll leave it live. So if you didn't get a chance to fill it out, you can head on over there and share your thoughts on the show. So until uh, session 21 rolls around, I will uh, see you guys later. Thank you for listening to the Behavioral Observations Podcast with Matt Sicoria. You can find Matt's notes on this episode at www.behavioralobservations.com. We also invite you to stay connected with us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash behavioral observations and on Twitter at Behavior Podcast.